Hello and welcome to the Android Central podcast for December 19th, 2018. My name is Daniel Bader. This week, we are joined by Andrew Martinick. Hello, how are you? Fantastic. And Russell Holly, welcome back. How are you? Hello. It's been, been a, a while. Good week. It has. It's been it's been a while since you were on. It's been a week since we potted last and lots has happened. Uh, including the first launch of a 5G network in the U.S. We talked a lot last week, Andrew, with Sasha Segan all mm-hmm. about 5G and how frustrating some of the early testing was when you were in Hawaii um, and how limited it was. But now we have a real honest-to-goodness 5G, except sort of not really. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about how uh, Facebook continues to uh, disrupt democracy and unilaterally bring down uh, the average uh, trustworthiness of big tech. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll talk about Sundar Pichai testifying in front of Congress and uh, how he basically schooled them. No, Google does not make the iPhone. Uh, we will also go into our favorite things of 2018 because it is near the end of the year. And with the end of the year comes roundups. My favorite part of uh, being a tech blogger is t- is going through the year and seeing what what was great and what was not. Um, and then uh, you know we'll talk about a couple other things, maybe maybe a Huawei mention here and there. Yep. You know because why not? Huawei is uh, in the news. Also, uh, shout out Mr. Mobile for making his Wi-Fi network my way or the Huawei go watch his make 20 pro <laughs> review for uh for more easter eggs like that um so let's start here russell you uh were 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 not here last week you weren't in hawaii but i'm sure you're covering and following all the 5g hype as everybody else is in the industry at&t announced yesterday that it is launching a 5g network in 12 cities in parts of 12 cities there you around go. the United States. <laughs> um, and it's only going to be launching with one product, the Netgear Nighthawk 5G mobile hotspot. God, I love that and, name. Uh, <laughs> and it's not going to be as fast as we all thought it would be, but it's a 5G network. What's what's your take on the way that AT&T's approached the launch? This gave me violent flashbacks to the launch of 4G networks in the US, but it's actually not anywhere near as bad as that. Uh, I just had this moment where I was like, oh, no, we're doing it again, where things were just confusing and, and details were intentionally left out. And uh, but but, you know, so what we've got here is is, you know, small areas in fairly populated cities where this Nighthawk router will be able to access speeds that are faster than LTE uh, and and will be able to to kind of test the the limits of of what. Uh, what these these kind of emerging 5G networks are capable of, but it's not going to do much aside from be slightly faster right now. Yeah. Um, Andrew, we were talking last week about how the theoretical speed limits for 5G will, in five years, who knows, be you know 10 gigabits a second. Mm-hmm. Like the, We're talking massive speeds, um, increases over even what you can get in, in, in home with uh, fiber or with uh yeah fiber today but these networks are not that at least not yet at&t is launching with just 100 megahertz of spectrum uh two by two mimo mm-hmm. and 
theoretical maximum speeds of around 600 megabits, which is actually slower than the maximal, maximum speeds we'd find on, say, Verizon or, or AT&T when, where their LTE network is really robust. But it's still going to offer peak speeds that are much faster than what you'll find on the average phone. Um, but early adopters here, why would anybody want to buy this $500 mobile hotspot and spend $70 a month for just 15 gigabytes of data? No individual person is going to want that, nor does AT&T think that, you know, you or I as normal consumers would ever pay for that. It's it's more of a situation where AT&T and Verizon and Sprint and T-Mobile everywhere else, they they all have to start somewhere. They have to start with something. We saw this very similar thing happen with uh, with LTE that it has to start with a non-phone device. It just makes it a lot simpler you can roll out this massive hotspot that uh, it's it's like the size of four Pixel 3s, roughly. Which yeah, is you pretty said this gross. thing was like chunk chunky. Yeah, it's like if you took two Pixel 3s side by side and then stacked two more Pixel 3s on top of those. It's roughly so pretty that far size. from what we would normally think as a mobile hotspot. At this yeah, point. I mean, cause I, I have an Alcatel mobile hotspot here that's uh, from T-Mobile and it's you know, it's the size of like a front pocket wallet. Basically, it's it's half the size of a phone. And this thing is about the size of four small phones. Anyway, so that's kind of where they have to start with stuff like this and uh, stupidly expensive plans. They're probably going to offer this up to like small businesses or very specific uh, people that they want to offer some sort of other bundle incentive or something else to just to get these things out there in a very limited test environment and then solicit as much feedback as possible and just watch how the things work on the network. Unlike today where the the networks are massive and they're kind of running on their own in many ways, these networks uh, in these very small pockets of these uh, 12 markets are going to be monitored extremely closely because they're going to know exactly, you know, they're going to be able to point to a screen and see all of the 5g devices. You know, that's just not possible right now with hundreds of millions of phones. Uh, But this is a situation where they're going to be able to watch every single one. And so they don't really care about getting massive consumer adoption. So the 12 cities that are, that AT&T is launching 5g, um, this week are Atlanta, Charlotte, Dallas, Houston, Indianapolis, Jacksonville, Florida, Louisville, Kentucky, Oklahoma City, New Orleans, Raleigh, North Carolina, San Antonio, and Waco. Um, what do those cities have in common? Like, what's the what, what's the uh, the reason that they're launching there as opposed to say New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, Los Angeles? Uh, um, big flat and medium density right and that's the environment where this millimeter wave signal will travel um better than it would be in areas where there's enormous um infrastructure lots of really tall buildings you know skyscrapers are not going to be millimeter wave friendly to millimeter wave signals so and my my guess would also be that there are areas where AT&T is already very confident in its LTE service and they're confident that they have enough access to enough of their own owned tower infrastructure that they can 
start to deploy this network without having to acquire a bunch of additional tower assets and things like that. Yeah, actually, uh, Sasha uh, wrote an article yet this week about how at and is not using any new infrastructure at all with this uh, initial rollout. They're using existing small cells that they're already using for LTE and just piggybacking, piggybacking off those towers. So uh, th- that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, Russell, we have a situation where AT&T gets to claim that it's the first. Tech companies love being the first. Um, Verizon is actually the first for 5G in the U.S., but it's only launching it only launched at four cities, and it's using 5G for home internet, broadband, essentially, not mobile. Um, how significant is being the first to launch this new generation of wireless? I don't really think it is. You know, I my nobody in nobody who's not in the tech world has any idea what 5G is right now, right? Like I, I go to bring it up to friends and family. They have no idea what I'm talking about. They barely understand what 4G is. Uh, explaining to them that there's this whole new thing and it's going to change the way that we think about connecting to wireless networks because Verizon wants to use it to to power entire homes. And, and you know, AT&T is, is trying to use it to, to appeal to small businesses. Like none of this really means anything to a lot of people right now, I think. So it's it's confusing. It's not like the launch of 4G where they were able to say we were the first and look at all of the speed benefits that you're going to get. Because as you pointed out earlier, AT&T is not even really able to say that in, in a couple of cases. And Verizon's home network tests uh, have been great, but not, not appreciably better than if you're in a good area with Verizon service right now. So it's, it's a weird thing for them to rush to say first because they can't follow it up with it's the first and it's way better uh, like they were with the launch of 4G in a lot of network in, in a lot of markets for for a bunch of places here. It's going to be it's we were the first and later this is going to be awesome, which is a lot more confusing a message, I think. Yeah. Um, Andrew, a lot of the hearsay about 5G has to do with health um, potential health hazards around mm-hmm. these high frequencies. Um, which is is hearsay. I mean, there's really nothing to back it up other than high numbers equal, you know, microwave signals equals bad for your health. That's what I used to cook my burrito. That's going to cook my brain. Yeah. So is that something Qualcomm brought up at the summit? Because I remember in 2017, when it was a much more theoretical launch, when they were talking about 5G there, they were really trying to downplay any health risks uh, associated with it. No, they didn't bother addressing it at all, actually. Um, the the only thing they're talking about somewhat related to that is their very advanced uh, antennas being able to do beam forming to bounce waves off of different surfaces and curve them around things rather than trying to just blast this really high, um, high power, high spectrum uh, energy through things because it just doesn't it just doesn't go through things so you really do need to get uh, you do need to bounce the waves and uh, curve them around things to get line of sight in in quotes line of sight out to the tower um, which you can say doesn't really address the problem but they're they're not specifically talking about any sort of health risks because I think that's just a it's a bad idea from their perspective if they're trying to push this technology to even bring that up. 
And I mean, is there, I, I wonder if the conspiracy theory, uh, you know, the conspiracy theorists are going to be spreading that when 5G becomes a bit more uh, prevalent and ubiquitous. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, m- much in the same way that we already hear a lot of that about uh, 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi. Um, we're going to hear it even more when the next iterations of Wi-Fi come out, that, which are actually very similar to millimeter wave 5G. Um, I think that's where the drumbeat's really going to pick up when uh, you have these new Wi-Fi networks and the new 5G networks uh, out at the same time in, in similar spectrum. Uh, famously, John Ledger, C- uh, T-Mobile CEO, likes to lambast all of its uh, competitors bad moves oh you don't say uh uh, this this is no exception right after at&t announced its 5g nighthawk mobile hotspot he released a a basically just a a, a, i don't even know a satire (laughs) an infographic it is an infographic i would say i guess it's an infographic with uh showing off at&t's the use cases for for AT&T's 5G hotspot including uh an armband, uh, a hand warmer, uh you can get a, a massive backpack to fit this massive mobile hotspot. Uh you can use it as a as a weight. Uh you can actually use it as protection um against, you know, bad guys. Like there's a, he's he's taking AT&T to task for for releasing this product and yet T-Mobile is still months and months and months away from launching a real 5G network. And even when it does, it won't be using, quote, 5G spectrum. Um, You know, other than the fact that he's just a kind of a dick, um, does he have a leg to stand on here? You can easily... (laughs) I I mean, you can easily (laughs) argue that it is smart to not yet launch publicly your 5G network. Because at this point, it really is an exercise of bragging about technology that doesn't actually offer consumer benefit, but makes you look good because you're innovating or something. But that's not what he's saying here. He's just trashing on AT&T for launching something that T-Mobile does not have and will not have for months and months, which which just is always a just a fantastic look. Oh, yeah, he's he's very good at at uh at looking i mean i I don't know it's some of it's funny but there's so many t-mobile stands who are like oh my god he really got you but at the same time like at&t is giving the service away for free for the next six months right until or the next three months until march anybody who does get access to this night nighthawk mobile hotspot is not going to pay for it and then once it's available more publicly, it's still going to be at, on a very tight leash. I mean, the company's kind of doing it right in in a in a sense, right? You have to beta test these yeah. products in public. It's just part of the business. If you don't do it this way, if you did it the way that we would all kind of like it to happen, where they flip a switch and it's just on everywhere, um, the network would just crash and burn. You, I mean, not literally. But it would completely fail because you didn't have any sort of testing. And especially with millimeter wave 5G, you with all of these small cells, 
it takes a long time to figure out exactly what the use cases are with mobile products using 5G. And you you would run into massive problems by just trying to trying to wait it out. Uh, I mean, we can make fun of 5G branding and all this other stuff that AT&T is doing that's really kind of cringeworthy, but they are taking the approach that that is necessary to launch the network. Can we take a second? We get it, John. You're you're an edgy guy. You're breaking up the establishment. You've got cool pink shoes. Like, sit this one out. It's cool. You heard it here. Sit it out. Won't do you any won't 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 do you any uh any harm this time. But I mean, can we actually just talk about AT&T's branding for a minute? Because this is kind of absurd. Um, the, the fact that they launched 5G Evolution in, in you know, to, to label its 4G LTE, gigabit 4G LTE <laughs> network. So now they have no choice but to not launch a 5G network. It's, the, it's a 5G plus network, uh, which is completely meaningless. Not to mention the fact that, you know, the even though this is sort of neither here nor there, but the first products that will use five actual 5G spectrum, they're not using the regular 5G standard, although it will be updated to support the 5G NR standard uh, in a few months. So it's that's not really relevant. But AT&T loves to confuse customers with its network branding. Um, mm-hmm. But then again, so does everybody else. So nobody gets out scot-free here. I'm very excited to see what happens when we have four different or three different uh, 5G logos that show up in the network status bar, depending on what carrier you're using. Oh, I remember that. Remember the, um, uh, the Sprint little uh, Spark logo that spun whenever yep. there was data transfer? I'm really excited for that. So, Andrew, when you saw the 5G Moto Mod connected to a Moto Z3 um, testing the Verizon 5G network in Hawaii, it says 5G UWB on yeah. screen, which is stands for 5G Ultra Wide Band, which means millimeter wave. But if that's the case, if every phone that runs millimeter wave spectrum is going to have UWB at the top to take up precious space in that notification shade. Uh, I think I'm just going to have to flip a table. I, I would, I, uh, I sure hope they don't do it, but I would not be surprised, especially, I mean, as we addressed in the last podcast where we went way, way deeper, more technical into this there, the, the first round of phones that launch on these networks are going to be very much carrier phones it's not going to be like an unlocked phone you just buy and put a SIM card from Verizon in. It's going to be like the uh, HTC Thunderbolt or Galaxy S2 Skyrocket or you know whatever these stupid things were that were very specific carrier exclusive phones. And on those, I would not be shocked if they did something stupid like that. I'm really excited. Maybe we'll get a cool like thunderclap. Uh, boot sound with whatever the first 5g phone is like we did with the thunderbolt on verizon because that was let me tell you how cool that was every time that phone started and that was frequent because the software was terrible and it boot looped all the time you would get this spectacular clap of thunder that could not be muted 
even when you were in meetings with people. So the the funny juxtaposition here is that other than T-Mobile's little flirting with HSPA Plus being 4G way back in the day, T-Mobile actually has the least aggressive and ridiculous branding around its network because it just completely leaned into just calling it LTE and calling it 4G. Whereas AT&T and Verizon have constantly come up with stupid names for it. Well, but yeah, there was that was after they took just a ton of shit for HSPA+. Yes, that was bad. Like, HSPA like just 42. mountains, yeah, mountains of, of bad press for that. And then they, they shifted to the the softer logo and branding, which was way better. But yeah, so now AT&T is getting exactly what T-Mobile got before. Yeah, it's funny how cyclical this whole thing is. Like, who's the the darling the consumer darling and who's the enemy, right? Like AT&T was when during the early years of the iPhone, I mean, other than it basically just dying every time somebody tried to get online because its network was terrible. um, You know, the fact that it had the iPhone, the fact it was kind of the aspirational brand. Uh, Verizon got the iPhone in 2011. It launched Droid in 2009, slowly kind of uh, took the spotlight from AT&T T-Mobile then with um I guess once John L- Ledger took over and started you know building Guerrilla his pink marketing. army um and and, and, and basically soldiers. flouting like just going going whole hog on net neutrality back when there were actually rules about net neutrality and um you know he was the T-Mobile was the first to offer zero rated features um what was the pre T Mobile One stuff uh, where you got your music and your movies um, zero rated? What was oh, that brand called? Uh, Bin John. Bin John, yeah. Anyway, terrible. that was it. Was terrible, but it also like to to people who didn't want to pay extra for uh, their music and movies, like that seemed like a pretty good de- idea at the oh, time. He's and then an s- architect of the future, really. <laughs> and then you saw the fine print only four eighty p forever and ever amen so yeah it was like there, there's upsides to it but there are mostly downsides to these carriers trying to innovate quote-unquote um let's talk a little bit about downsides from another company uh facebook is back in the press this week after a like just a a really well-reported new york times editorial or new york times um investigation into its um its its partnerships with various companies and the the latest on it is that facebook basically gave companies like microsoft amazon netflix strangely the royal bank of canada um how dare you daniel yandex (laughs) that was me yeah uh yandex russia's uh search engine yandex who uh reportedly you know, shares information with Russia, the Russian government, access to Yahoo. Um, and Yahoo, yes, uh, access to consumers' private messages, contact lists, email addresses of friends of friends, and lots of other things that these companies claim they had no idea that they had access to. But Facebook, even after it was admonished by the FTC in 2011, even after it claimed to have um, closed the loops with 
all of these companies and all of its uh, APIs were, you know, still giving access to uh, massive, massive companies. So this has, as it normally does, Russell, spurred on a delete Facebook movement once again. Um, people as high profile as Walt Mossberg claim that they're going to shut down their Facebook accounts on December 31st. Um, what's the actual takeaway here? You know, what's the real, like, what's, what's the real response that we should be having to yet another Facebook scandal and abuse of our personal data? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's there's always the first step there, which is to, you know, if, you, if you're just done with Facebook to get rid of your Facebook, but don't get rid of your Facebook because Granddad Mossberg told you to or said that he was going to. <laughs> like, that's just not the way to go. Uh, and, and the same, like, you see it all over Twitter right now. So I'm, I'm canceling my Facebook account. You're on Twitter already. You don't use Facebook for much anyway. This is not, like, a big deal for you. Facebook is still a big deal for a lot of people, in particular an older generation that is kind of, uh, you know, begrudgingly accepted social networking as a way to keep in touch with family or people who use it for work or people who use it for uh, as a business, as a method of communication. I, I bought a ton of stuff for Christmas this year where I realized that the contact form for the website that I ordered from just took me straight to Facebook Messenger. Oh, yeah, uh, as, that's a as really a way bad to one. Chat, yeah, like it, like it fired up a chatbot immediately on my phone as soon as I hit, you know, uh, to, to contact a company. And it was, it's lots of companies are doing it. So, I mean, like Facebook is is deeply integrated for a lot of people. So so it is not, it is not always as simple as, as getting rid of it. But also, uh, you know, Facebook is not the only company. We, we, we spent a lot of time not talking about uh, the, the pretty terrible data leak uh, situation that Google had with Google Plus because Google Plus was shutting down and people weren't using it. But it's it was still a pretty gross thing that happened. And there's not ever going to be any consequences for that. And in the same way, it doesn't really feel like there's going to be any lasting consequences for Facebook aside from the, the kind of 48-hour outrage cycle that we've got going on for them right now. It, it really feels like at the end of the day, the, the next step is for an actual governing body to step in and say, you you can't do this shit anymore. Like the, the things that you do with with personal information, you you need to be held accountable for the way that you treat people's data. And then there's an inherent problem with saying that out loud. First of all, there's just a group of people who are always against any form of government regulation, and, and rightly so in some cases. But the biggest problem that we saw this week is that who... Who in our government is knows enough about what is happening to act as a proper regulatory source for these people? We've seen uh, the the you know the the congressional hearing where where Mark Zuckerberg was was called up and had to explain to people how ads work on the internet. Like th- this is not uh, you know the the weird thing here is that it is not enough to say well you can't you know you can't do things with this data anymore. You, the the people responsible for creating those rules are just plain not equipped for for this particular set of problems and and even outsourcing it i feel like is is ineffective uh to to kind of bring in other organizations to do this there really needs to be kind of a governing set of rules for the internet writ large for how data gets treated and that's that's a really complicated thing but i feel like that kind of needs to be what happens i think that that last part really nails it it's not a good idea to focus so much on creating one 
type of regulation of telling Facebook what it can do. Right. Yeah. It, it just is not worth it's just it's not going to accomplish the problem that you you think that you're uh, or uh, create a solution for the problem that you think we're facing right now because even there there are already issues from other companies right now uh, ongoing and we hear about the new one every every few days every few weeks there's some massive uh, breach or change of policy or some other reason to mistrust. Uh, these companies, you can't focus on, I mean, as crazy as it seems, you can't just focus on Facebook. Although like, that's a great example of what you want to try to stop, but it's completely counterintuitive to try to uh, bother regulating one company like that. And even then it's super complicated because are you regulating all of Facebook or are people taking Facebook as an entire company or just the initial Facebook service? Cause there are, are a right. ridiculous amount of people who are like, Oh, I'm deleting my Facebook account, but I think I'm still going to keep Instagram cause it's just pictures. Are, are you shitting me? Like, did that really just, did you really just say that it's the same stuff? It's the same data the ads get put in the same place that the information that is your, the Instagram app on your phone has access to all of the same information that the Facebook app has access to the, the location tracking stuff. And for many people are exactly the same that that's why Facebook acquired Instagram to begin with. Well, but what we're really experiencing here is that people gain the uh, social benefit of telling people that they're doing right. something without actually the benefit of doing something. And we've seen that uh, play out time and time. Hashtag again. activism is so much fun. I think it's I think it's also uh, worth talking about that, you know, when Facebook's um, initial uh, FTC um, deal happened in 2011, where uh, it it, it, so there was a consent agreement in 2011 after complaints were lodged to the Trade Commission about the company sharing data with um with third parties without actually informing the the users that they were doing that and part of that consent agreement was that facebook would not uh would would always actively inform its users when it entered into an agreement with a third party before sharing its data facebook apparent according to this um report has never sold its users data because it knew that if it ever did that regulation would be the next step right um it's the same with google right google understands selling people's data is is a bridge too far but the the thing that really gets me about this report is that it's it's apis the the mechanism by which netflix amazon um Yahoo, Yandex, all had access to this personal data was not part of um, the consent agreement because Facebook considered these partners to be, quote, an extension of itself, which meant that it could get around, it could skirt around the specifics of this consent agreement. Yeah, we're just going to take this data here and move it over here within our own organization. We're we're not selling the the data we're just giving different permissions to access the data but we still hold it and it's and, safe and that's why i'm so concerned about the the concept of regulation to begin with because defining this is is going to be ridiculously complicated e- even when you know dealing with uh intelligent you know skilled people who understand how this technology works 
And there, there's also all of this weird muddy ground about how some of the third parties ended up using this data. Uh, for example, there was a separate report that was out earlier today uh, uh, kind of linking this to the way that Amazon used to flag people who wrote reviews for books that were somehow connected to the author. So like, you know, I, I published a book and my brother, you know, wrote a review and went, yeah, this is a great book. There was a period of time where Amazon was really good at finding that you were related to the person you were writing that review for in some way and nullifying your review on Amazon. And that doesn't work anymore. And the timeline for that lines up really well with the period of time that Amazon was supposed to have access to this data from Facebook. And a big part of this API is that people you know function that uh, that Facebook has has touted as this kind of big thing that it does so well. Uh, so it, like the the it, there was never any kind of concrete evidence, but the the conclusion drawn in the research, which is really compelling, was that that was how Amazon was getting this information for a period of time and and using it to to you know adjust the way that people saw reviews on Amazon. Yeah, and this comes back to a report in Gizmodo by um, Kashmir Hill uh, from 2015, where Facebook, uh, the Facebook's people you may know feature, gave her the suggestion of a of a great aunt or of an aunt that uh, she knows would never she would never have been able to find any other way, and Facebook's PR at the time just shut it down said we do not have any content partnerships with third parties that would share this information and that's literally what they did like this is exactly what facebook allowed third parties like amazon to do right and the the example you gave russell where amazon was using facebook uh facebook's knowledge graph to basically piece together who in its own database knew one another and maybe related it's so insidious. It's so fuck. It's like if we're swearing, I'm just going to swear. It's so fucking big brother. And it's it's just like it gets me because it's this really specific example of a, a, a kind of a useful feature. People you may know, hey, like I haven't kept in touch with my friends from high school. Maybe you'll know this person because, you know, you're friends of friends of people on Facebook. That's actually kind of uh, helpful when you think about it on the surface, but when you see the extent to which companies will go to undermine it in order to enforce its existing rules or help it um, help it be a little bit more oppressive, um, that's where it, it all just flips around for me. And and that's a very good point that the access to this information your whatever you want to call it, your private data, your social graph, whatever, access to that from companies does not is not as often not insidious or malicious or anything of the sort. The we're often getting real benefits from these companies having access to these things in terms of uh, it being you know, whatever simpler to contact the company or getting you know whatever better uh, connections with friends you know related to the products all that kind of stuff the problem is that it's happening in the background it's happening without consent it's happening after you consent to one thing and then they you know they they move the move the football when you go to kick it kind of thing that's the issue and that's what makes us distrust 
these companies so much more when that stuff happens in the background. It's not necessarily that we think that they're doing something wrong with it. It's the fact that it's happening without our knowledge. If if you take that a step further back, right? It, the you know you uh, a lot of people critics of of the the idea of regulation will look at this and say, well, you know, people should just be personally responsible. All of this stuff was happening in the background in such a way that it is impossible for many people to even conceive that some of these connections were were plausible, much less uh, you know possible. And that that is a difficult thing to wrap your head around. When you do anything on the internet, like uh, I'm, I'm a pretty careful person when it comes to the sites that I go to and the kind of information that I share, but to, to know that I have never connected my Facebook account to my Amazon account in any way and, and know that that information was being used because they had their own separate agreement that they didn't tell anybody about. That completely invalidates the concept of personal responsibility, in my opinion, because that you just can't, you know, if you didn't have knowledge to control it in the first place, how can you be expected to control it? For me, a lot of a lot of this pushback comes, um, you know, when when I when I talk about Facebook in this way, people who are not quite as indignant about it say, "Well, what about Google? Right? You work for." a company that writes ex- almost exclusively about Android and Google-related products and services. And even as you mentioned, Russell, Google had its own privacy scare or privacy um, violation a few weeks ago where it realized that uh, its Google Plus APIs were, were leaking data and that if you, if you went to the right place and you typed in the right keywords, you would be able to get email addresses and personal information of various Google Plus users. Um, and even though Google claims that nothing nefarious was done, that none of that data was actually used um, for for illicit purposes, they're going to shut it down early. And then again, Google found a second leak in its API and pushed up the Google Plus shutdown a few months um, in, in order to... Uh, to hasten its demise so that it can just get rid of this API altogether. And the thing that I say to that is um, I am always, I always believe that I, I know what Google is doing with my data, right? This is what Jerry says. You know, Jerry is the biggest proponent of security and privacy at Android Central. And he always says he does not trust Google necessarily, but he understands that Google's privacy and, and and personal use personal data um, tools are as transparent as possible and that he knows exactly what Google is doing with his data at all times and I believe that's called uh, active and informed consent that I always understand what a company is doing with my data and that whenever I no longer have a clue what they're doing with it that's when I no longer feel like I have uh, that I can trust them anymore. And we lost that with Facebook a long time ago. Definitely. And I think that's really the difference here, in my opinion, and you may disagree, and that's fair, between Facebook and Google. You know, there's two things that are important there. The first is that Google has 
the, the, the biggest issue that I have with, with what Google did regarding its data uh, practices for Google Plus was the amount of time it took to disclose that information. And that is, is kind of an unforgivable thing that, that, that the company has not been held accountable for because it was a, a long period of time where this information was known and was not disclosed. And that's a huge problem because the, you know, security breaches are, are things that are really bad, but can be dealt with, with communication and transparency and Google demonstrated neither of those things. And that, that's a, that's a huge breach of trust in my opinion that the, the other thing that I have regarding the way that this data breach happened is uh, the, none of it, stepped outside of Google's uh, privacy systems, right? So the information that you, the information that was disclosed was information that you knew you were providing. Right. Uh, it and was Google so, plus information, right? It was, it was Google plus information. It was not, it was not information that you weren't aware was available to Google and its partners through Google's privacy system. If you go to Google's privacy manager you have a really straightforward, cleanly written, very easy to understand tool for where your Google, where, where information gets to Google and what happens to it uh, when it is being used. And you have a lot of control over that. And if you turned off the things that provided that information to Google+, Plus, uh, that information, you, you, it wasn't there to share. Uh, so it was not the same thing as, as what has been happening with Facebook. It is still very bad. Uh, and, and there really should still be consequences for the way that that was handled, but it, it, it makes it a little easier to swallow for me knowing that the, the, the way that Google handles data as a whole is still a great deal more transparent and public than anything we see from Facebook by comparison. And but just to be clear though, um, cause I want to, I want to reinforce what you're saying. It is now. Google was not always as transparent as it is today about the way that it uses user data. And a lot of this was a result of internal inquiries, um, of pushback by the government, of users revolting. Um, The same things that are happening with Facebook now, it's just that Google, A, managed it better, it responded more quickly, it didn't have as many um, controversies because none of that data left you know, the, the, the Google ecosystem. But at the same time, back when Google Plus was uh, growing and when Google was really trying to compete with Facebook, this was, this was the, 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 the time when login with Facebook, login with Twitter, login with Google Plus was at its peak. The company was thirsty. It wanted Google Plus everywhere. It wanted Google oh, yeah. Plus in YouTube. It wanted Google Plus on your Google uh, search page. It wanted it in all of the Android apps, right? And it would not settle until you took it, you know, and liked it. And that I think was was an egregious overstep of its of its power. Um, and it's only now backing off because Google Plus failed. And I wonder if Google Plus had been more successful, whether they would be as um, concerned or as publicly concerned about transparency and, and the privacy of its user data as it is today. Uh, yeah, I, so some of that I think is absolutely true. I, I think that, uh, that I would argue that we started seeing significant privacy pushes uh, on Android from Google well before Google Plus was 
really a thing. And it, it certainly got better over time uh, and, and got more defined and, and cleaner to understand with feedback. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that that without Google Plus we wouldn't have the system that we have now, or without the problems that were encountered in Google Plus. But I also wouldn't be surprised if knowing that this security breach existed caused someone at Google to to you know put steam on people to to ramp up uh, you know privacy things so that they could say, look at this thing we're doing now. Uh, but you know, even going back farther than a year, which which puts us within the timeline of of when this you know became a thing that they should have disclosed, I would still say that the stuff that Google had been doing with privacy at that point was was still not only leaps and bounds over what it was doing before, but but was enough to cause me to be a lot more comfortable about the information that I shared with the company. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's no question that Google handled it better, that it has a better handle of user data, but it is still like Facebook, the largest advertiser, you know, online advertiser in the world. And it collects a buttload of data that, you know, we're hoping stays in, uh, you know, in, in the right hands, hoping that it, nothing ever happens to how much, you know, all, that, that treasure trove of info that Google has on me, because it has a lot more info than Facebook ever will. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of Google, let's talk a little bit about uh, Sundar Pichai's uh, testimony in front of Congress on, uh, it's just over a week ago. So it happened on December 11th, 2018. Um, Andrew, this this was a big deal, right? Because Google had been invited to uh, testify in uh, Senate hearings beforehand. And it was, even, had- it was a bit more aggressive than invited even last time. Yeah, they were they were sort of um, almost demanded. Yeah, if, yeah. But, and uh, Larry Page did not show up. Um, you know, th- he was the one invited, and uh, that's the the it, what is he now? The CEO of Alphabet, chairman of Alphabet. I guess he's both. Yep. Um, you know, he's still the guy in charge, and uh, he just didn't show up. Also, what's happened to Larry Page? Sort of disappeared. But yeah, that's a kind different of story. I don't know. Dif- different story altogether. So Sundar eventually accepted the invite to sit in front of Congress um, and fielded a whole bunch of questions around um, data privacy, um, political bias within Google, and whether or not uh, the iPhones are, are safe, <laughs> uh, to which... Sundar had to respond that Google does not make the iPhone. Um, what was what was your takeaway from this, Andrew? Was this a question of Sundar just outplayed the representatives um, at asking him questions, or was it just a sort of a a, a di- dichotomy between um, you know two sides of the political spectrum? trying to ascertain different things uh, in a very short amount of time. All right. I'm not sure where Andrew went, but my, my take on this was, was pretty interesting. I, you know, there were three things that kind of stuck out at me. The first was uh, nobody really seemed to actually want to ask Sundar questions that had anything other to do, to do with other than 
uh, whether there was political bias at Google. Like that was that seemed to be the actual reason that he was there, uh, even though the the questions and the testimony uh, beforehand seemed to lean in other directions. Uh, but the conversation really kind of kept drifting back towards that in in really just vague and irritating ways. And Sundar trying to answer those questions in different ways every time he was asked what felt like the same question uh, was was kind of interesting. The my my second take from that particular point was uh, we ta- there there was a lot of talk about political bias. I was really kind of sad that we didn't hear anything about competitive bias, which is something particularly with things like Google Maps. I personally kind of struggle with every once in a while like when I look something up on Google Maps, like a restaurant in the area, and uh, and I you know it it doesn't pull up you know, things that I know are obviously restaurants that are closer, or if I look for gas stations and it only picks out certain gas stations and not ones that I know are physically closer. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a frustrating thing that, that, you know, leads me to question how some of that stuff works, but none of those questions got asked at this, uh, this conference. Uh, and the, the third thing was really just kind of this reinforcement that there are so many people who are in charge of things in our government in the United States who just straight up don't understand how technology works. Like he had to repeat on more than one occasion that Google does not make the iPhone. And while that's, you know, okay, ha ha thing, like, no, that's, that's kind of important when we're doing things like having hostile arguments with, you know, just, just, uh, you know, what could be companies that interact with foreign powers or, you know, any of the other, uh, you know, ways that we're trying to investigate uh, foreign interference, th- these people don't understand how any of this works. And that's a terrifying concept that, that I wish was, was better dealt with. And, and I, seeing Sundar just kind of stare blankly at some of these people and, a- and answer these questions in the most simple terms and have them still not understand it was frustrating. So two things that uh, during his testimony really struck me. The first is that a lot of the the uh, Congress people um, believe that there are individuals who control search results, right? That there are ways that Google, that somebody in a back room at you know in Mountain View can manipulate what is showing up on the home on the first page of a of a search result, um, and you know I it's kind of like that the 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 theory that we keep hearing about how Facebook um, turns on microphones to listen to what we're talking about and then shows us ads on our phones. Um, it's it's the same idea that like if we don't like what we find on page one of Google. We're going to believe that somebody is out to get us, that it's that legitimately, um, you know, them scheming to to manipulate the results. And I'm not talking about one side or another. I don't want to get into a right or left Democrat or, or Republican or Democrat debate here. I'm saying that it is very interesting that a company at the scale of Google, one that processes billions with a B search results every day can somehow be under the scrutiny of people who believe that like some guy with a grudge is out to get them and manipulating the search results. Like to me, that is just unbelievable. Um, The second thing is that they, they brought up this, this um, rumor that Google is planning to launch a search product in China. 
And uh, Pichai did not shut that down. He, in fact, said that they're internally noodling the idea, but that nothing has come of it and that they have no plans to launch search, uh, search product in China at this time. But at the same time, a few days afterwards, we, can't, we got reports that Google had shut down the project completely, that it has now yeah. ended that pursuit entirely. Um, so I guess maybe there were plans and he just, you know, they, they got further and further away from being viable. So they, they shut them down. But the whole thing was like, this is a, this is a CEO of the world's biggest ad company under testimony. Uh, he swore to to tell the truth and yet everything he said was not untruthful, but it was, it was just, I don't know. It was like. Very, very, uh, I don't know. It, 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 there was a lot of, there was a lot of haziness to his answers. Let's put it like that. Yeah, I mean that that's true. There, it was, but at the same time, like he he could get away with it because nobody was really paying attention. And totally, it's, exactly. It's, it's I mean, just so weird. Like I, I would so prefer a different group of people be able to ask these questions and then be able to ask intelligent follow ups. Because even if he had provided a, a concrete answer, I'm not convinced that any of the people in that room would have been capable of a follow-up that would have, that would have appropriately held him to task. Right. No, 100% correct. And um, I think that is an inherent limitation of the format. Uh, you only have five minutes to a- ask and, and get your question answered. Um, but also that there's just not enough education amongst senators and and members of congress who understand how this stuff works i mean it's it's hard for us to deal with and we deal with this uh it's hard for us to understand sometimes and we deal with it every day uh imagine only dipping into this topic every few weeks or months it's even harder for them andrew do you have anything you want to contribute for this conversation Uh, it, it sounds like you guys probably got to the you got to the main points of it so i i won't i won't completely repeat it. It was, it was very odd internet uh, oddity where I could listen to you guys, but apparently I couldn't talk back and then my router crashed. So I'll assume that oh, you shit. hit all the amazing points. Thanks, Google Wi-Fi. All right. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and talk about our, um, our sponsor this week, Thrifter. Thrifter is the place to go to save money on everything from gadgets to home goods by shopping based on value and not hype. As we do when we have Thrifter as a sponsor, we go through the homepage, thrifter.com, at thrifterdaily on Twitter, and we each pick a deal that we like. Um, Andrew, since you've had so long to prepare for this, <laughs> I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to go with you first. What's your pick for uh, your Thrifter deal? Two quick picks of the same ilk, uh, $5 off a $50 Google Play gift card, which is awesome because you're probably going to spend $50 on Google Play in some amount of time. So you might as well get $5 off of it. Also $5 off a $25 Starbucks gift card, which good uh, quick Christmas gift or, you know, load it up in your Starbucks app and you will use these things. So take five, do you take 10 or 25% off like super easy. You just buy the gift card ahead of time, use it as you normally would. Yeah, this really is the time of year for gift cards. Discount gift cards are my jam. (laughs) 
Um, and that is something Thrifter does really, really well. They round up all the discounted uh, gift cards, but also iTunes discounts. If uh, you're looking for for iTunes credit at a lower price, Thrifter has your back. Uh, Russell, what's your pick for this week? Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to sound weirdly excited about this more so than I typically am about stuff. Uh, Walmart has the arcade one-up machines for a hundred bucks off, so they're normally three hundred dollars, and these are two hundred dollars. And if you're unfamiliar with the arcade one-up machines, they are three-quarter size arcade machines that have licenses for like Street Fighter and Street Fighter Two, or like a, there's like a twelve-game collection that has like a Galaga and Asteroids and and Lunar Lander and, and a bunch of other really cool games. Um, there's one that's uh, Pac-Man and Pac-Man Plus. Why they decided to do Pac-Man Plus instead of Miss Pac-Man, I don't understand. Um, and all of these are really cool. They they feel like actual arcade cabinets, but actual arcade cabinets, full-size arcade cabinets, uh, are like eight to $9,000. Like, they're really expensive. Uh, the, the whole deal behind these arcade one-up machines is that they're already really inexpensive, and these are now way less expensive. So for 200 bucks, you get what looks, feels, and sounds like an actual arcade machine that you can really easily assemble in your house. Um, I haven't actually told Daniel this yet, but we're actually going to have a review of these consoles very soon on Android central. Um, yes. so, uh, th- I'm, I'm very excited about these. If you care at all about kind of the old school arcade look and feel and have just a little bit of room in your house to put one of these, you should totally get one. And at 200 bucks, like you you really, really should get one. I'm I'm not going to get one because I don't have room in my, in my office where I, it would, it, it would have to go. Um, so I'm just going to live vicariously through you on this one. I'm going to um, send you some pictures after this podcast of the room that I was in where all nine of these machines were set up. Oh, my God. It's, it's really great. Okay. Well, mine isn't quite as exciting, but it's uh, some serious value. If you're, um, if you're in the U.S. and you have not yet purchased a Google Home Hub, if you go to B&H this week, you can get a Google Home Hub and two Google Home Minis for $129. So normally the Google Home Hub on its own is $129. Yeah. Uh, B&H is giving you two Google Home Minis free with the purchase, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but if you haven't yet invested in Google Home, if you don't have Assistant anywhere and you would like it, uh, this is an amazing starter kit. They should call this a Google Assistant starter kit because it's basically all you need. Or if you just want the Home Hub, buy the Home Hub and give away the Home Minis as gifts. Oh, yeah. There you go. Altruistic uh, Andrew. That's my name. That is your nickname <laughs> from, from now until the end of the podcast. Um, yeah. And, and unfortunately, as I, as I see this, no shipping to Canada. B&H ships to most things to Canada except the good stuff. So if you're interested in learning about all of these deals and more, hit up thrifter.com at thrifter daily on Twitter and sign up for their newsletter because it's seriously amazing. Uh, while you're there, also make sure that you uh, subscribe to their limited time newsletters. So uh, Black Friday, um, you know, all of the, all of the, uh, the, the seasonal, th- you know, all, all those newsletters are really important. If you want to be the first to know about deals during the best times of year to save. And uh, for my Canadian peeps out there, there is a daily Canadian newsletter. And for all of my UK peeps, there is a, a U- United Kingdom newsletter uh, with daily deals on all of the finest wares at discounts in your respective countries. 
All right, so we're going to end the podcast today uh, on a lighter note because it got pretty heavy there. We're going to go through our favorite things of 2018. Each of us are going to pick a favorite phone and a favorite non-phone product to talk about because, as I said, I love lists and I love learning about what everybody loved this year. So uh, we're going to start with you, Russell, because I love your picks. I think um, I think one of them is something that I'm coveting so bad right now um so what were your favorite things of 2018 uh let's see i think my favorite things of 2018 the first was is kind of an easy obvious one it's the one that i use i think all day every day and that was the google home hub Mm. i really just dig it like i i I find myself just using it way more than i thought i was going to because it's something that's small enough and private enough that i can comfortably use uh in in my bedroom um for phones i have been weirdly in love with the asus rog phone uh and i say weirdly because i have laughed really hard at gaming phones all year long only to find one that i actually really liked using uh and so that was kind of a fun thing to to find myself doing and uh for kind of small thing i really enjoy uh using the uh motive ring for some stuff i don't use it as often as i thought i was going to because i switch back and forth between platforms too frequently uh but it was pretty cool too wait what about the 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 lighting thing oh right yes i that's right i totally forgot that i thought that we were going to talk about this in a separate segment and then we didn't so that was entirely my fault no i've been playing with the nanoleaf canvas Yes. Uh, this is uh, an upgrade from the Nanoleaf Aurora lights, which are these kind of triangular lights that you hang uh, in your house. And they're just, they're like art, but they are light at the same time. And the canvas lights are squares instead of uh, triangles. And they actually fit in more places because they're a little smaller uh, and they're a little less expensive as a result. The individual panels are anyway, but the panels are actually touch friendly. Every single panel in the grid is touch friendly. And so you can do things uh, like, you know, very, very quickly kind of change the the colors of the panels by just reaching out and touching them instead of reaching for your phone and going through the app and going through all of the different menus for it. You can kind of interact with it a little more and far less functional than it is just amusing. The, uh, the developers at Nanoleaf, like for fun, build games that you can play on this thing every once in a while. They just kind of have like like mini hackathons every Friday to be like, what what weird thing can we put in this thing? I was uh, I was at an event where they just had like a massive wall of these things, and you could play Pac Man uh, that they had built, uh, where like one of the squares was yellow and one of the squares was like the different colors of the ghosts, and it would just chase around this massive grid, which is a silly thing that most people are never going to be able to afford to put in their house because it was like two hundred of these squares. Uh, but it was just, it's really fun to see any kind of hardware creation where developers are just so genuinely excited about the product that they start doing silly things with it. Uh, and so I've, I've really just found myself thoroughly enjoying them and, uh, and, and I'm probably going to spend way too much to get more of them in my house over Christmas. I got a, a set of the uh, Aurora's and they're the triangular versions, the initial ones, and they are gorgeous. They're, they're practical smart home lights, like a, you know, uh, Philips hue in the sense that you can change the colors and do all that cool stuff with an app. But they are, if you set them up in a particular orientation on your wall, they are just gorgeous. I mean, there's a reason basically every YouTuber has them behind them when they're when they're filming it's just they're they're 
they're amazing products and they're they're really unique and i think the canvas just takes that one step further so um so so excited to see those um Actually, how did you set yours up? I don't even know. I have them set up. As soon as you walk in my front door and turn around, there is a uh, there's there's a line of them going up my front door, uh, and then coming over in different areas, uh, just uh, kind of sticking out in small trees. And the they stick out just far enough that they almost look like uh, a scene from Super Mario Brothers. Um, hmm. And so I put little Mario figures on them. That's amazing. <laughs> Because you have I to send me a photo of that, yeah, or post a photo on uh, on on Twitter when you uh, when we publish this. Absolutely. Okay, Andrew, you're up. What's your favorite products things of 2018? Well, I think that nobody will be surprised that uh, the Pixel 3 XL is is my phone that I've, I've enjoyed using the most over the year, uh, even though I've only had it for a short period of time, it's kind of this continuation of enjoying using the 2XL, but it just got really good at the end of the year because I stopped hating the screen. Um, that's kind of the funny way to look at it is that it didn't really change all that much, but that's kind of one of the thi- the, the last little thing that I needed to make the Pixel 2XL good, and uh, the 3XL has it. Um, I'm still infuriated by the speed of the camera and how it's just really slow compared to everything else on my desk. But the fact that I keep using it, even with that problem just shows how great the rest of the phone is that I'm willing to put up with the slow camera. All right. So you have a, you have your phone. Uh, what's your, what's your non phone thing that you're, that you loved this year? The weird thing is, is it's Google photos still. And it's, Simply Google Photos because other like normal people in my uh, among my friends and family are using Google Photos, which really unlocks its potential. Uh, it's already an awesome app, great service to back up your own photos. But now I'm starting to explore more of the sharing and album collaboration and all of those awesome features that you get when you and all the people that you're with and typically want to share with privately are also using Google photos, Google photos, just, it it just handles this sharing stuff so seamlessly. And it's, uh, it's just surprising now that when I'm, I'm together with, uh, family members, I go to share a photo to them and it doesn't matter if I hit share and send it via SMS or email or whatever, I see that they have Google Photos because it automatically pulls together all those links and that they immediately get it. And then they can have a prompt to share photos back that are related and you can quickly create albums and people can suggest and collaborate on these things. And it's the kind of stuff that I never really experienced in the early days of Google Photos because it was just me and a few other nerds that never shared photos with one another using it. Yeah, I mean, Google Photos is an amazing product. I it's, it's kind of like Google's iMessage, I think. It's the thing that's gotten beyond its um initial I guess smaller release or um s- smaller scope and it's just become part of people's everyday um e- everyday usage whether you're mm-hmm. on an iPhone or an Android phone. Everybody I know practically uses Google Photos. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, I actually have a a live album 
that uh, I share with some family of of my daughter, and it automatically adds those photos from my Google Photos album, uh, my Google Photos library to that album. They get the notification when there's a new photo added, and then they can comment and respond. And it's 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 just it all just works. So you know that's it's just such a great product. Um, okay, so mine are not that not that dissimilar to Andrew's. Um, my phone is the Pixel Three. I think the smaller baby Pixel is amazing. It's an awesome product. I've written extensively about how it's my favorite phone ever and that stands on december 19th um it hasn't changed it's only gotten better once they fixed a bunch of the bugs with the december update and uh i don't know it's it's for me other than the occasional slow speeds with the camera app which honestly i still don't understand andrew we're gonna have to talk to people at google and understand figure out what the hell is happening it's just it's 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 doesn't make any sense but anyway, it's a near perfect experience on uh, most days. I get all day battery life, even though it's a smaller phone than the 3XL. Um, if you guys have an experience with either the Pixel 3 or 3XL, good or bad, send it over to us, podcast at androidcentral.com. Um, my other pick, my non phone pick, is another thing that I just wrote about recently the OnePlus Bullets wireless headphones. They were kind of my surprise of the year. They are $70. They sound great. They fit really comfortably. They have a magnetic uh, clasp that shuts them off when you're not using them, and they just kind of hang around your neck. They are super comfortable, amazing battery life, and they charge via USB-C. They are literally everything I need in a pair of casual headphones. They're not waterproof, so you don't really want to use them for running, but in 95% of my daily life when I'm just walking around or listening to music, they are outstanding and they are now back in stock. So you don't have to worry about whether they're going to be available because for the first like six months of their life or five months or whatever, they just weren't available. They were always out of stock. Um, It looks like OnePlus figured that out. So, and they're inexpensive. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty reasonably priced. So yeah, what were your favorite things of 2018? Send us, uh, tweet us. Um, we're at Android Central. I'm at Journey Dan. Andrew's at Andrew Andrew Martinick. Russell at Russell Holly. You guys have v- very practical Twitter handles. Uh, I, I do not because at Daniel Bader and at Bader are not available, even though they're really? idle accounts that haven't been used in like seven years. They oh, are not available. That is so, criminal. That should be should be illegal. Regulate that, Congress. Huh. If you <laughs> if you want to send it to us over uh, email, as I said, it's podcast at androidcentral.com. If you want to mail us snail mail, it is... No, I'm joking. Um, all right, so that's going to be our show for today. Um, this is going to be our penultimate episode of the year. Hope you know what that means. What does it mean, Andrew? It means there's going to be another one. Yeah, unfortunately. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you, if you, uh, you know, we're so interested in, in in like knowing what you thought about uh, the conversation as well. Um, what do you think of Facebook and Google and and and, and all these other companies? Um, you know, using and misusing your data. Please uh, send it to us. Let us know what you think. 
Um, and uh, we will talk to you next week. All right. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.